Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 31. Uh, this week, it's the, the full gang here. We have Sarah Gladys, Mark, and myself. We also have a guest, Nicholas DeCola. He's here to talk to us about automating security in Azure. But before we get to Nick, uh, let's take a look at the news. Sarah, why don't you kick things off? Okay, I will do. So I'm going to talk about some of my favorite things. To start with, I will talk about Azure Defender. Um, so Azure Defender for Azure Database for MySQL is now GA. In fact, this is there's a few of them here. And Azure Database for MariaDB, Azure Defender is now GA. And Azure Defender for um, PostgreSQL is also now avail generally available. So um, if you've been waiting for those to go GA, uh, we know uh, that some customers aren't comfortable using things before before their GA, um, go and have a look at them. So um, that's your Azure Defender will um, obviously give you some insights as to what's going on in, in your database. So um, whether that's MariaDB, SQL, et cetera, because um, of course we know that people can do terrible things with databases if they get into them. Other thing I could not finish the news without talking about is my baby and uh, Azure Sentinel. And uh, I actually had a customer email me, um, hello, if you're listening to this, saying that I, um, I need to learn more about your baby. So I can only assume that you do listen to the podcast and I'm really sorry. Um, but something that uh, we released last week was our normalization schema documentation. Um, in particular, our DNS normalization schema is now in public preview. Uh, but generally, we've updated all of our normalization documentation in Sentinel. Um, so go and have a look at that because, uh, yeah, um, you'll be seeing um, you'll be seeing more of that in the future. And yeah, uh, that's probably me for this time. Actually, Sarah, I'm going to add some information uh, uh, that I wanted to release about readiness. Uh, the last few months, I have been uh, providing links uh, to the different Ninja courses that Microsoft have been releasing for Sentinel, Azure Security Center, Defender 365, uh, Defender for Endpoint, uh, Defender for Office, and Defender for Identity. Uh, do I forget? Oh, my uh, Cloud App Security. Well, uh, Microsoft just released a new course uh, for Defender for IoT. Um, so, so that's pretty cool. Uh, for those of you that have not heard about these Ninja courses before, they are free um, set of trainings that intend uh, to take you from level 100 to 400 uh, for each of those services. So I recommend searching for the Ninja courses or go to our podcast site uh, for more information. In addition to those courses, uh, Microsoft has a security community where we post a lot of different information about our security services. And uh, through the summer, uh, they're having live webinars uh, about Sentinel and many of the other uh, security services. Uh, you could get uh, more information by going to aka.ms slash security webinars. In the technical area, I saw a really interesting blog named um, Azure Security Score versus Microsoft Security Score. It explains the differences uh, between each of the capabilities provided for each of the service, um, the type of data uh, that each uh, of the secure score provide, and lots more. For example, Azure Security um, Score focus on Azure uh, Amazon Web Services and Google IaaS uh, and on-prem related, 
while Microsoft Security Score focus on identity devices and app areas for the SaaS services. Again, for more information, just go to the podcast site. And the last one thing that I wanted to mention was um, a, a, this awesome uh, PowerPoint presentation is included as part of the human-operated uh, ransomware uh, documentation in Microsoft Docs. Um, it's called ransomware recommendations, and it provides uh, some mitigation plan uh, for uh, many of the areas, including collaboration and email, endpoint protection uh, plan, which include clients, servers, and browsers, remote access plans uh, uh, for RDP, VPN, and VDI, account protection, privilege access plan, data protection plan, um, and, and much more. Actually, Mark, I think uh, this uh, you've been working heavily on this. Can you provide more information? Yeah, the, the the reason for the details on that, which you know, we wanted to kind of help with that bridge. You know, oftentimes customers have kind of this challenge of like, okay, great, I agree, this is a good technical best practice. We want to adopt it, but then they have to go and figure out what their team looks like. Who 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 needs to get sponsorship from management? How do they measure success and show that they're actually doing something meaningful to justify the 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 project, et cetera? And so we wanted to kind of shortcut all that and provide like a ready-made project plan, and that's that's really what we focused on creating there is kind of creating that that bridge there so that you could then go to the technical guidance and follow it. The big reason for that, quite frankly, is. As you know, Gladys, I'm sort of a you know look out into the future of cybersecurity and try and bring all the positive stuff as close to the present as we can, and let's you know let's get to the better future faster. But I'll tell you what, with this ransomware thing, there is not a lot of light um, in the tunnel for a long time um, because the profit model of these attackers is is crazy. Like the amount of money that they're taking in just from the publicly disclosed um, ransom payments that we've seen go by, not. The, the silent ones that get paid and, and nobody ever hears about it on the news. You know, just that tip of the iceberg is is putting these ransomware gangs in control of budgets that are rivaling that of nation states. And so these are some, you know, back alley, bare knuckle criminals that are just hardcore. You know, they don't mind, you know, putting someone in harm's way and say, you know, we're going to shut your hospital down if you don't pay us. And, and and they're ruthless. They will, you know, say, "Hey, we can't afford to pay." Well, here's your financial record that says you can. And they're uh, th these guys play rough, and they've got a lot of money. So it's it's a it's a pretty difficult situation, and I don't see it getting better anytime soon. I, I see a lot of good moves at the government level, but it takes a long time to get, you know, extradition and prosecution and all the jurisprudence stuff to work. Um, when you're talking about every country in the world having to agree and work with it, because there's uh, quite a few countries that are seeing a lot of local economic benefits from this and other benefits as well, strategic, et cetera. So I don't expect ransomware to get any easier anytime soon. And that's, that, was, that was one of the things that, that drove that guidance, and we're continuing to invest in more prescriptive guidance and you know, document forms so it's easy to consume and, and the like. So that's a, a huge area of focus for us is to, to help customers with this rising tide of ransomware. The other pieces, just to remind folks, I, I can't remember, it's been a couple of weeks since I was on the podcast last, um, but we did release this, uh, this new cyber reference architecture for Microsoft, the, uh, the MCRA, as some like to call it. So that's, uh, that's out there um, as well as, because um, that's a nice architectural level thing, but um, there's also a, a lot of need that we found at the program level, sort of, you know, what, 
you know, what does a secure, good security program look like and how should you be thinking about security operations as a discipline, um, access control, asset protection, et cetera. And so we put out um, a secure methodology of our cloud adoption framework that really outlines that sort of CISO and, the, and their directs and directors uh, level view of the program, how to interact with the business, how to run your program, how to measure good, et cetera. And so that CAF secure methodology is uh, also available. And then just a little bit of geeky news for a bit of a positive uh, silver lining is that uh, Microsoft is actually one of the founding members of the Space ISAC, um, the Information Sharing AC. I forgot what the ACs usually stand for, um, but this is where um, organizations that are in the space industry get together and exchange threat intelligence and knowledge and learning specific to their industry. Um, and so, uh, yeah, kind of a very um, kind of a forward-looking uh, you know, Star Trek-y type of moment there. That's all I got. So a bunch of things took my interest over the last couple of weeks. Uh, the first one is that we now have in preview the ability to audit service principles in Azure Active Directory. This is actually pretty cool because as we move more and more applications to the cloud, but things like client authentication, we're going to start adding um, more, more around, say, service principles and managed identities. We need to understand, you know, what those identities have access to. Uh, you may have an orphaned application that runs with some kind of elevated identity and you totally forget about it. Well, this will allow you to find those things and audit what they have access to. So this is a really cool feature to see. Uh, another one is for as you migrate, we now have private endpoint support. Basically means that you're going to have, say, an express route with a, a private tunnel, IP address tunnel, um, between the source and the destination when it comes to doing migration. And as I've mentioned in many podcasts prior, but I'll say it again, you know, one thing that we see uh, in more and more products that are coming out in Azure is the is support for private endpoints, uh, along with custom managed key support for um, for data at rest. Uh, another one is we've actually reduced the price for the DC2 SV2 virtual machines. Uh, these are the virtual machines that are used in confidential compute. Uh, so, for example, if you decide to spin up your own processes and write your own code using the um, secure enclave SDK that's available on GitHub, uh, those VMs are going to be cheaper. Uh, I actually don't know what the impact is on the cost of, say, running um, Azure SQL DB uh, with secure enclaves, uh, but it's around 37% all up, which is, uh, which is you know, real money. Another big one that really uh, took my interest is Azure Key Vault Managed HSM, Hardware Security Module, is now available. So... Azure Key Vault is kind of interesting, right? So you've got this, this, this service that you can use to store secrets, keys, and certificates, which, by the way, is certificates and private keys. But some people want their own dedicated HSM as opposed to having a shared, uh, shared resource, which is what Azure Key Vault is. We did have uh, an offering um, called Azure Key Vault um, Dedicated HSM. It had different APIs. It didn't use the same APIs as Azure Key Vault, which meant that you couldn't use it with certain features uh, within within Azure. Uh, so we've now replaced it with um, Azure Key Vault Managed HSM, and that is now generally available. So for, for customers who require um, a higher level of assurance, keyword there being assurance, um, so these are validated at FIPS 140-2 level 3. These are fully managed, single-tenant, uh, high-throughput HSMs, they, but the cool thing is they have the same APIs as Key Vault. So if you're using, say, Key Vault today with Azure Storage or Azure SQL or, say, Azure Information Protection, uh, you can now essentially slip in a managed HSM. 
I, I don't see this being a huge, you know, seller compared to say just straight as a key vault. But for those customers that need this thing, this is this is a, a welcome addition to the Azure Key Vault family. The last item I want to talk about, and this is really coming from a development perspective, is I don't know if you guys know or not, but you know, Visual Studio Code went from literally nothing to being the most popular editor on the planet. Um, and there's a lot of very good reasons for that. Visual Studio Code is used to edit edit things like ARM templates, um, as well as you know writing uh, Azure function Azure Functions code, and you know there's all sorts of Azure related plugins available for the for the editor. Well, one of the downsides of having this uh, incredible complexity is you might download say a a plugin, or you may download say a workspace that might have code that runs. Well, what happens if that's malicious code? So now there's a thing called Workspace Trust. Uh, which is now built into Visual Studio Code. Uh, the version that just came out, I think it's 1.5.1, uh, has this enabled. Uh, so when you go and open up a workspace, it will actually ask you if you trust that workspace or not. And if you don't, uh, basically a whole bunch of plugins just won't work. There's a bunch of features that won't work by default. You'll still be able to edit the code and look at the code, but there's a whole bunch of extensions that just won't just won't work. Uh, so this is a, a welcome addition uh, because we are seeing and we have historically seen attacks through editors that have all this extensibility capability. So this is a, a fantastic addition to see. So if you're not using Visual Studio Code, uh, go kick the tires on it. And again, the latest version has this workspace trust built into it. Now that we have the news wrapped up, uh, let's turn our attention to our guest. This week we have uh, Nicholas DeCola. He is the Director of Cloud Security within CXE. Nick, why don't you spend a moment, uh, introduce yourself to, to our listeners, explain kind of how long you've been at Microsoft and uh, and what you do. Actually, while you're at it, uh, word on the street is you have uh, written some books and you've got a new one coming out. So why don't you just spend a couple of moments explain what the books what the books are all about? Yeah, Michael, no problem. Uh, so first, like, thanks to everybody in the podcast crew here for having me on. Uh, I've worked with all of you over the years and it's been great. Um, but my name is Nicholas DeCola. As Mike said, I work in our cloud security division uh, here at Microsoft. I've been here actually almost 15 years as of next month. Uh, so really close to that 15 year mark. Done a bunch of different things here, uh, but always kind of worked in security and cyber. And before that, uh, I was in the United States Marine Corps uh, doing IT slash security, uh, which I retired from there in the reserves uh, as a cyber. They call it a cyber weapons officer, which sounds really, really aggressive, but uh, it's just more of a cyber defense analyst, right? So yeah, so about the books, um, you know, we published the Azure Sentinel book with uh, Yuri last year. We're actually planning to do a second version of that. So that may be coming out in the near future. And then we just published uh, with Anthony Roman and myself, the Azure Network Security book. And we found just, you know, talking to customers that there was kind of a gap around all the capabilities that Azure has in network security and really understanding those from an architecture perspective and diving into each of the capabilities of the products and how to really use them in the best manner uh, with some depth. So uh, Anthony and I spent some time and wrote that book. So that one just published. Uh, and we actually have an SE 900 book coming out. Uh, we're finalizing that now. Uh, so that should be out later this year. Um, so folks can use that as a test prep to really help with the uh, new SE 900 test. And I'm glad to talk about security automation. It's it's like this big passion I've had uh, kind of for the past couple of years. And it really stems from all of my years in working in IT and security. You know, it's just task after task after task. And, and a lot of these things become re repetitive process. And if you really look at any technology we have in some way, shape or form, a lot of it is about reducing that, right? And the big next leap for me that I see in passion is, or that I have a passion around is that 
security <clears throat> needs automation, right? There's more alerts coming in. There's more data to analyze. There's more uh, things generating incidents and and uh, those types of things that happen. And we need to be able to automate and respond to those in an efficient manner, right? So I think it's super important and I'm super passionate uh, about this and glad to talk about it. So can you give us a background as to, you know, what sort of things you're going to automate? Uh, you know, is there a way we can think about automation? Um, any sort of nomenclature we can think of? Yeah, so in the industry, if you hear the term SOAR or security orchestration automation and response, uh, that's typical what you would hear from vendors with these types of products or if you hear it uh, kind of generically in, in type of uh, tech docs or things like that, you know, SOAR is the term that you hear from folks. Okay, so there's verbs in there um, and letters. Um, it's going to sound like, what did we say it was, Michael? Jeff, what was it? Wheel of Fortune. You see, from where I'm from in the world, you would say it was um, a different show. But anyway, O, A, and R. What's O? Yeah, so SOAR is definitely an acronym, right? Um, not SOAR as in soaring uh, and flying high, although we hope that this uh, will get you there. Maybe you'll be able to fly and do much more. But great question. O is orchestration. And kind of the key to security automation and SOAR, as you will call it, or folks will call it, is really orchestration, right? Like you have to be able to talk to all of these different things and platforms and APIs and capabilities, right? Because no organization has any one single product for all of security. And actually that would probably be a bad model because no product would be really, really good at it, right? They'd be too broad. Um, and so we, we typically get products, whether that's uh, from Microsoft or other vendors that are very, you know, focused on a certain domain. And that's great because they do really, really well at looking at that capability, right? And just like, you know, uh, companies that do ITSM or ticketing type systems are really, really great at ticketing type systems, but something has to be the glue that can help you orchestrate and talk to all of these different things. And that's really key is like having a capability or a product or, or solution that can talk to a lot of things so you don't have to write those integrations, right? Being able to call all of these different type of capabilities. So what is A then? Great, great question. So A is automation, right? Like um, it's all about now that once you're able to orchestrate is automating that. And, you know, we need to be able to basically do action A, do action C, do action B in, in some type of order and be able to do things like conditional statements, et cetera, um, from the orchestration. But it's really about automating that that next step, right? So a human doesn't have to go click A, click B, click C. Okay, I want to play too. Tell me, uh, tell me about R and I'm also interested in uh, kind of comparing the Microsoft 365 Defender uh, variant of SOAR as well. But uh, so tell us about the R. Yeah, R is is response, right? So it's going to be the action you take. Uh, what's interesting is really in response, there's a couple different things uh, that you can do there. And that's, um, you know, you can go enrich an object. So maybe I have an incident and I want to go get some more information. Like imagine I have an IP address. Um, some no, unknown IP address, I can go grab some G, geo information and bring that back to the incident. So that might be like an enrichment scenario, but I can actually also respond and actually take an action, right? So maybe I go block that IP address in a firewall or something like that. Um, so that's that's kind of what response is. And then you mentioned auto IR inside of M365, which is a, an amazing capability, right? And this is back to the depth uh, in these certain domains. So the auto IR capability is really good in depth uh, currently for Defender for Endpoint and Defender for Office. Um, 
going in and running these automated incident response pl playbooks. They're kind of pre-canned and built from Microsoft for you, uh, but they're very focused on that domain, right? So doing things with Defender for Endpoint, looking at endpoints or email with Office. Um, so they don't, they lack a little bit of that orchestration to be able to integrate with other systems, right? So they're very, very focused there. Um, and, you know, just kind of talking, you know, personal experience here, like one of the things that has made me so passionate about this is I think back to the the days, um, you know, in the Marine Corps and early on working with customers at Microsoft, like we get an incident and then you have to go do 10 different things, right? Like I need to go like, hey, maybe I just have something where I'll take an impossible travel is, is, is a simple one. Maybe I have an impossible travel and, and Mark's traveling to Thailand and we don't expect him to. So I got to call his manager. Hey, is Mark expected to be there? And he comes back and says, oh, no, he's not. Okay, well, let me go see what, what other activities going on with his account. So now I got to do some more queries. And then I establish, okay, this is probably legit and I need to take an action. And then I actually have to go over to whatever system I'm using for identity and actually like reset Mark's password or enforce an MFA on him or maybe even just disable his account, right? So like, it's just the whole the whole security automation I've just seen over years, like there's just too much steps that people have to take manually. And it's so important that we figure out a way to automate this with, with everybody. Yeah, the, the swivel chair automation, excuse me, the swivel chair and analytics as well as those manual repetitive steps are just like the misery of the sock. Yeah. Yeah. Who wants to do the same same clicks every day? Right. Like everybody wants to focus on kind of the cool thing and the hard problem to solve. And if we can reduce the 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 thing that they do every day into something that's automated, now you can take that brain power and really focus it on something else. Right. That actually is, is more important and a much harder challenge. We already explained a little bit of why automation is important. But can you expand further and how interconnection makes this happen? Yeah. I, I mean, this is a, a great one. Like. The way I think about it kind of at a, a really high level is like we're running out of humans, right? We already know there's like a two million person job shortage uh, for cyber security type jobs, right? There's all these jobs out there meeting, right? Two million jobs that are open, but there's nobody to fill them. And yes, we need to do more and we need to, uh, you know, train STEM better at, at the lower levels of schooling so that we get more people into STEM. But at the end of the day, there's still going to be a job shortage. We're behind the curve. And so... It's really important that we, again, we go back to what I just said, which is automate that that basic task that happens all the time. And even some of those more complex tasks um, and kind of the struggle I hear from customers really is like, hey, you know, I, I wanna automate this stuff, but I'm afraid of like breaking something. Like what happens if I break something, right? And so I think it's, it's super important that customers, you know, look at those simple things that they can start with and kind of move up that stack and get, get a little more complex each way. And if there's something you're not comfortable with automating, great, don't automate it, right? Like, you know, make, you know, add in approval steps if that's a, if that can help alleviate that mitigation or help alleviate that concern with a mitigation, right? Yeah, I mean, that that's awesome, dude. I mean, the, the way I like to think about it is really that we're empowering the humans, right? We're trying to, to, to get more out of folks so that they can, you know, do more as opposed to like replacing them. We're just replacing the manual annoying tasks. Can you give us some real world examples? Like you mentioned some of these tasks, like, you know, how are, how are, uh, how are organizations using uh, the Soren Sentinel and what, what kinds of things specifically are they solving? Yeah, great, great question. So, you know, we, we talked a lot about kind of, and this is the Azure security podcast, but kind of the news around Azure Defender and, and Sentinel at the beginning, thanks to Sarah. And, um, you know, with CSPM and Azure Defender um, and Azure Security Center, you know, we talked about a little bit about secure score, but customers 
you know, have this secure score. And I kind of think back again, this is a personal experience of, hey, you, you remember the old vulnerability days of, you know, scanning with some type of scanner and now you have this new vulnerability and now it's on a list and someone needs to go like remediate it. Well, what if you could automate that, right? So what if you could build a, a playbook using logic apps in Azure to say, hey, whenever this new, you know, uh, resource comes online and it's not in a secure model, I want to go do X. And X could be lots of different things, but it could be, you know, all the way to best case would be you go automatically remediate that resource, right? And so we go change whatever bit or setting in ARM um, or, you know, block, you know, put it behind a, a private endpoint, as Michael talked about, some of these new services using private endpoint, um, so that now it's not exposed and we've just immediately reduced that vulnerability. And again, we could add extra steps in there for things like, you know, coordinate with my IT ops section so that they know it's happening and, or maybe even the developer or owner of the application, so they know it's happening and it's not, you know, breaking them. But, you know, that way they really, um, you, you can speed up the time to that resolution, right? Because if that, you know, let's just say uh, uh, resources public to the internet when it's not supposed to be, you're just, that's just more minutes that the attacker has that they can actually go after it. And it, I think it's super important. And, you know, there's lots of scenarios in a SIM world, whether you're using Azure Sentinel, which, you know, I love Azure Sentinel, wrote, wrote the first book on it, you know, I, I want more people to use it, like lots of opportunities to respond there. And again, I talked about the enrichment scenario. You know, hey, we get an alert, uh, Mark has traveled to uh, Thailand or uh, to an IP address. Maybe we know it's in Thailand or maybe we don't. Uh, but you let's keep go pull sending me to Thailand, man. <laughs> I don't I, mind. I, I visited Thailand, so it's always uh, on my mind at some point. I've been to lots of different countries. But um, yeah, like, you know, maybe I can go rich in, in some information. And now I've just saved that analyst time from like opening, you know, a Google browser or a, a Bing browser and searching, you know, hey, what, you know, where is this IP address located? Or I'm going to look in my own threat intelligence capability that I have in-house um, and query that IP address and see what I know about it, um, you know, those types of things. So it's just really more things that you can alleviate from the analyst having to go do manually, uh, as you call it, the swivel chair automation, um, you know, is, is really great for them. So just uh, another example, kind of real world scenario is, um, you know, again, you, you wanna, you know, orchestrate and, and automate some actions. And so uh, I love some of the capabilities that are in Logic Apps. Um, you know, we have a step that you can actually go send an approval email. And I think that's amazing. Like I, I explain this to customers and I'm like, think about that impossible travel alert. What if instead of picking up the phone and calling Mark's boss, right? I can just send him an email that says, hey, is Mark traveling to this country? And there's two buttons, yes or no. Very simple, very easy for the manager to respond to that. All he has to do is click the link. And once he clicks it, uh, assuming you haven't trained him too well in spear phishing attacks, right? Um, you know, he clicks the link and says, yeah, Mark's supposed to be traveling there. Well, now I can handle that incident, maybe just close it. Or, hey, maybe he says, no, he's not supposed to be traveling there. And so I can handle that condition and go do some other different steps inside of that playbook. So you mentioned logic apps. Uh, I've done a lot of work with Azure Functions, but I'll be honest, I've never really played around with logic apps. Can you just give our listeners a brief overview of uh, logic apps, why logic apps and their benefits? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I love that you're doing stuff in, in Azure Functions. I, I do too. I, I like it because I can run native PowerShell code uh, in there and do some really great things. Um, and what's really interesting, uh, we'll talk about this uh, is what Logic Apps is, but Logic Apps uh, is really a super powerful, low code uh, environment, right? So think about a capability, if you've never seen it, uh, to be able to design steps and actions of a playbook. So uh, you can call it a workflow, you can call it a playbook. Basically, I wanna do A, I wanna do B, I wanna do C. Um, but with every one of those things, 
first in logic apps, there's a trigger. Something has to trigger it, which typically will be, you know, something from Azure Defender, something from Azure Sentinel. It could be a manual thing that happens on a reoccurrent schedule. Uh, you can even have an HTTP endpoint as your trigger. So you call a, a, an API um, out to Azure and it basically would run that playbook. But with each trigger in action, there is dynamic properties that come out. And this is really, really powerful because there's a nice list of properties from all of your previous actions as you go further down into your playbook. And you can use any one of those properties. So like, I don't need to code, know how to code or find the severity of an incident or a severity of a, maybe something that comes in from Azure Defender, whether it's a high or medium or low, it's a dynamic property called severity, right? And I can just drop that into my condition statement that says, hey, if this severity is high, you know, and I can put in high, medium, low, whatever I want in there um, and take these actions, right? And so it makes it very, very easy. Um, and if you're familiar with or have heard of Microsoft Flow, it's it's the same thing, but in Azure. Um, so they have a lot of the same capabilities there in Logic Apps. Uh, but one of the cool things you mentioned Azure Functions is you can actually call an Azure function from your Logic App. Um, so if you have some capability that you need to run native code, um, they do have a little bit of new capability in Logic Apps where you can run na some native code. It's specifically Java. Um, not a Java person myself, so I like PowerShell, but I can call, build an Azure function with a, a, some PowerShell code in it, call that from my Logic App if there's maybe something that is much more complex that you need to do uh, you know, a little bit uh, beyond what the, the low code capabilities provide you there. Hey, so actually on that topic, so does that mean you can pass in an argument from the Logic App as an argument to an Azure function? Yeah, absolutely. You can pass in all kinds of properties, right? So, and again, you can use those dynamic properties, right? So you don't have to like hard code your argument. You can actually um, take one of those dynamic properties and pass it in. Um, again, your Azure function would be looking to accept that as you know part of the body or the payload uh, that comes comes in. And yeah, you can absolutely pass those in. So Nick, I mean, you know, the way we think about it is like a, a kind of a full lifecycle view of security, right? I, you know, if you go with the NIST one, it's identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. Microsoft tends to shorten it, you know, because you know a lot of those things can be similar to each other as prevent, detect, respond. Like, where does SOAR fit in the lifecycle? Is it purely like incident response only, or are there other elements of it? So, you know, like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's definitely uh, you know not preventative, right? Those are typically things where you're blocking uh, an action uh, before it happens. Um, so it's definitely detective and responsive, right? So you may see something um, that's that's happening and and need to respond to that uh, with with the playbooks there, right? So take the uh, somebody creates a storage uh, account with a public IP address, right? And I I say I don't want any storage accounts. Uh, with public IP in my environment, right? So Azure Security Center would pick that up as a recommendation. And so once that's there, you can have a workflow automation is what we call it inside of uh, Azure Security Center. And it would automatically call a playbook. That playbook could go handle it. So maybe it could remove the public IP or put it back on a private endpoint or uh, you know whatever it is that you want to do, turn on the firewall on, on storage to make sure that it's not allowing anything inbound. So again, you could follow all kinds of things there, but it's very much detective and responsive type controls. Yeah, so you talk about you know prevent, detect, and respond. I mean, in Azure, probably the number one feature that we would use in Azure would be Azure Policy as a preventative control. I had a, a strong customer just recently about this. Uh, they had a, a storage account that had a, a publicly accessible IP address, um, which basically means that the storage account was sitting on the internet, um, <clears throat> caused a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a fire drill. 
But one of the outcomes of this was, hey, you know, we really need to start looking at uh, using Azure policy with the action set to deny. And that way we can actually prevent this thing from happening going forward. And the customer said, well, we're actually using this other tool. Um, I can't remember what the tool was. Um, let's just say it was Divi Cloud. I actually don't, you know, don't quote me on that. Uh, so well, we're using Divi Cloud to, to find these kinds of things. Well, the, the problem there is Divi Cloud is not a preventative control. Um, it is a uh, detective control. So there is a gap between the storage account going live and then it being picked up by the tool. And so that's why, you know, even though you've got all this stuff, you know, talking about Nick, uh, we can't lose track of the fact that things like Azure Policy um, can be used as a very, very powerful um, preventative control mechanism. Yeah, it's a it's a funny point. Actually, I was talking to a customer about Azure Policy not that long ago, and they love the capabilities there, right? Like being able to block, just like you said, and and uh, specifically ask, can you extend this over to uh, other cloud uh, providers? Because it's such a great capability. Um, but you know, one of the things that I think is really good is you know the capability in Azure Policy. The downside is not quite everybody's ready to implement those policies or has gotten to that point yet. And and things like Gladys talked about um, with our guidance that we published around this, you know, we have some some pre-camp policies folks can use. But the other challenge is at the rate of innovation in the cloud, new features, new capabilities. And so, you, you know, people might not be creating those policies as fast as these new capabilities are coming out, right? Like, okay, maybe today, you know, storage doesn't have private endpoint and it comes out tomorrow. Well, people, you know, it takes time to build that policy, maybe do some testing with it, uh, et cetera, and get it implemented. And sometimes maybe it's just missed, right? And so the nice thing I think with, you know, store capability is to bring all that together in the sense that, okay, now we have this, this storage account with public IP. I can build a playbook that one opens a ticket in let's say something like ServiceNow, right? Because we have a, a nice ServiceNow connector there. So there's this new ticket or incident inside of ServiceNow saying that this resource is out there public. Um, and you know maybe we do some approval, maybe we don't, but we automatically go resolve that resource, right? We, we take it off of being public through whatever means. Well, you know the ticket's there now. And so the ticket person, you know, kind of working that in their queue can take that and assign it over to the engineering team to say, hey, like this is probably something we should make into a policy. And now you can continue like tracking that over to policy. Maybe it's to go spin up another ticket if you have to or, or whatever, but at least you can add it to their backlog, you know, using that type of integration. So you could even do something like, hey, after it's resolved, go ahead and open a second ticket that that says, hey, engineering, you need to evaluate whether this should be a policy or not um, based on on that. So you know, it can, you can definitely have some steps or maybe you have a manual playbook that you call uh, to create those kind of tickets that you want engineering to go review uh, and build policies around. So definitely ways to help automate that and make sure that stuff gets tracked so that at the end of the day, right, you get to that secure place, hopefully using policy to prevent. But if you don't, you got some detective and response controls as well. So what about the security alerts from Defender? How would you deal with those? Yeah, I mean, there's two ways, right? You can obviously, you know, build workflow automation in Defender uh, with that. But, you know, what I'm recommending to a lot of customers, and there's a big reason why here, is, is really integrate those with Sentinel. And the key factor there is that you can now correlate that, right? So, yeah, it's an Azure resource. Azure Defender picks up that, hey, something was uh, attacking this resource and you need to go mitigate that. Um, but are you missing some type of bigger context, right? And so bringing it together in Sentinel, you could basically use logic apps with Sentinel and again with Azure Defender if you wanted to, but you could correlate it and have actions uh, that touch multiple different things 
across um, all the data and all of the different devices that might be involved or diff different resources that might be involved. Can you give an example of correlation? Yeah, this is a great one. Um, we, we actually built a couple samples um, and we'll make sure to share out the link to our, our public GitHub repo with a bunch of samples. But um, a great kind of example of this is, so I have an Azure resource. Let's let's imagine that Azure resource um, is a SQL database and I have it behind a third-party NVA, right? Network virtual appliance. Uh, so maybe I'm using a Palo Alto. And this is where I think Logic Apps is super powerful, powerful is, I can take that alert inside of Sentinel. I can correlate with some raw data that I'm bringing in from my Palo Alto to make sure you know it's legit, or if I want to see if there's anything else going on. Um, and in my playbook, you can actually you know go remediate the resource. So maybe I do something on the NSG in front of that SQL, um, or I can even go uh, integrate with Palo Alto. And we have a couple examples of that in our in our. Um, uh, public GitHub repo, we have a new connector. Um, but when we first did it, we actually used an Azure function and we would pass in an IP address to the Azure function and the Azure function would call the Palo Alto API and add it to a block list. And so now, you know, I've taken this resource that is behind my firewall that has potentially been attacked. I have this IP address I know I want to block and now I've integrated and this is back to the orchestration power and SOAR. Um, to really, you know, reach out to Palo Alto and add that to a block list, right? And it could be any any firewall vendor, it could be any other resource, but I think this is where SOAR shows its real power, right? Because I could even add steps in there. Hey, open a ticket, maybe send a Teams notification to my SOC, uh, you know, do all kinds of different things that I want to do as preliminary steps and then go take action on that, even with third party, uh, you know, maybe things that just have an API access, uh, you can go connect to those things and, and basically integrate them really easily. So as a developer, uh, whenever I hear about writing any kind of code, whether it's low code or you know, C++ code, one of the first things that comes to mind, especially when we're talking about enterprise level deployments, is versioning and version control. So does this technology have uh, version control? Man, Logic, great question. Logic Apps did an awesome job in this. The, the team over there, uh, even in the Azure portal, they have versioning, right? So you can see your previous versions. When you click on it, you can see both the code version and the designer version, which is really nice because it's you're, you know you can see the playbook in its graphical form, uh, which is really how most people develop Logic Apps. Um, but again, the great thing is it's all based on um, uh, ARM underneath the hood, right? So because it's an Azure resource, you can take that, run it, uh, take it, put it in CI/CD, get control, all of those different things, right, and control that source uh, however you want to you want to do it, right. It's just infrastructure as code. So one thing we ask all our guests is: Is there one final thought you would like to leave with our listeners? Yeah, one. Uh, I'm going to change that and say not a thought. Uh, I'm going to give give folks a challenge, right? I, I really challenge folks to go try to create a simple single playbook using Logic Apps uh, with their Azure Defender, um, with with any type of resource. There's lots of connectors inside of uh, um, Azure so and Azure Logic Apps. So my recommendation is pick some scenario that you automate. And let's, see, let's see if you can do it. And so maybe something as simple as once I get an alert, send a Teams message or send an email to somebody, create a ticket, try something super simple and then start looking at you know what's your next steps but that's the challenge you know build that first playbook because it, it's super easy and i think people um a little hesitant to try it but once they do they really get into it and it, it's it goes fast so let's bring this to an end hey nick thanks so much for joining us this week uh, we know you're very busy and we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us uh as i mentioned at the beginning 
uh, Nick and Anthony have a new book coming out uh, on Azure Network Security. So head on out and buy a copy. Uh, I certainly learned a great deal, Nick. Thank you so much. Uh, we trust that all our listeners learned a great deal too. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.